Standing for our scripture lesson out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. This is coming off Paul acknowledging that the gospel message placed in their bodies of jars of clay. And he continues, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. After a, believe it or not, a three-week hiatus, as two weeks we were on vacation, and then last week with Oktoberfest, we're returning to our exhilarating study in Second Corinthians today. So let's go to the throne first. Father, we would never approach the throne of grace without prayer, and we would never come to you except with Jesus in the arms of our faith. We are in him even today as we bring ourselves before you, praying that you would feed us the Lamb of God, the second person in our hearing and in our feasting um, in the supper, supper later as well. Now we consecrate this day to you, this worship to you, and this preaching to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the epistle of Second Corinthians, in my opinion, probably has more angst in it, expressions of the stretching of the soul and body between heaven and hell, death and life, than perhaps any other book of either the Old or New Testament. Paul really puts his heart out there and expresses it in graphic terms as even today's text. This letter does express this, and it does it for our good. But this agony and this ecstasy always achieves God's two primary goals, and that is the glory of the Holy Trinity and the good of the elect, blood-bought church of Jesus Christ that has been forgiven all their sins, the good of the saints of God. We must always remember this, that it is Jesus' suffering and not ours that is redemptive. Paul's going to speak about his agonizing difficulties and travails in today's text, but our suffering is never meritorious. It might be sanctifying, making us more like Christ, but it never earns any points with God. In fact, our sufferings, our deeds, our actions, our works have no place at all in our justified right standing with the Father in heaven. This is achieved at the cross of Jesus Christ where his precious blood was shed for us, the saints of God, those elect from all eternity. All of our righteousness and justification is imputed to us by the grace of God as God gives us Jesus' righteousness and takes upon himself, Christ does, our sin and depravity. The Holy Spirit applies this to us so that we become not just sinners, but sinner saints of the church, those who continue to struggle with sin, to be sure, but yet who get constant assurance that we're making progress in our most holy faith, 
as we hear that our sins are gone from us, forgiven, and it fills us with great love for God. And therefore, in light of all this glorious gospel truth, this resurrection day, let us make it our goal to cling to Jesus in life and in death, studying together 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12. Gospel preachers dead and alive. First, the doctrine. The church's minister's suffering squeezes Christ's life out of them. Now, as I studied this text and mused over it for some time, this was the best explanatory summary I could conceptualize. The idea of Christ's church's ministers having his life squeezed out of us so as to feed the people of God. To use a rather imperfect illustration, it would be a little bit like the Lord filling a spiritual syringe with the life of Jesus, injecting it into his ministers, who then expend this energy, especially in preaching the gospel to them every Sunday, so that they then have life, but while doing so, they come close to dying. That seems to be the spirit of Paul's teaching. Now, of course, the problem with that illustration is that our righteousness is not infused, it's imputed. The doctrine of infused righteousness is, of course, a a horrible mistake. It is a legal declaration upon us sinners that we are right before God. It's not God infusing something into us. And yet, I still like the illustration. So let us now better understand why the church's minister's suffering squeezes Christ's life out of them. First, so that the saints are fed Jesus. Here's the church minister's job description is to feed Christ, the Lamb of God, to the church, the people of God, so that you have life and have someone, the person of life, Jesus, to share with others, to demonstrate his life and love as you did last weekend at Oktoberfest, for example. The minister himself gets fed principally through prayer. Have you ever thought about that? The the church minister is principally fed through his prayer time. And this explains why the two primary tasks of all the apostles and the pastors in the New Covenant Church Age is prayer and preaching. Those are the two main things. Everything else is secondary and or dispensable, but Prayer and preaching is not. That's absolutely what we do. And as you call your new pastor, that's what you want to discern in him. Now, it is true that the minister's role is first to the church. That goes without saying, Galatians 6.10, do good to all people, but especially those who are of the household of faith. But it's not exclusively to the church, as we're going to discover in the second part of this doctrinal Section. In fact, we saw that last week as we went downtown for other people. But suffering is a big part of this process in the ministerial role. And why is this the case? Because the life, Christ, whom we proclaim, does not come in any way from us, but comes directly from God. And there's no way to communicate that kind of life from God except through Death to the the old man, the flesh, sin, 
And life in Christ, the only giver of life, the one who communicates himself through these gospel sermons. So we have to die and live. And that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. And it's through that agonizing experience that the life of Christ is transmitted to the children of God in the church. Now, we might ask the question, would we want it any other way? And I would argue that probably not, because there is so much power in the gospel that no human being could contain it, except for the grace of God working through us through this death to the old man in flesh and life in Christ. The church's minister's suffering squeezes Christ's life out of them so that the saints are fed Jesus and so that the elect lost are given Jesus. Now this important concept comes out in the torturous language of verses 8 through 10 which is referenced on your outline and we're going to study it a little bit later. From whom is Paul and his faithful ministerial presbyters receiving this rancorous treatment mentioned in verses 8 through 10? Well, from unbelievers to whom the gospel is being preached. But who are the beneficiaries of the minister's perseverance in the face of these ugly scenarios mentioned in these verses? Lost, elect sinners from every tribe, nation, people, group, race, and place on earth that are hearing the gospel. They're elect and they're going to be saved and brought into the church of God. And this gospel comes to them through these ministers as they preach that good news to them. Anything in life that's worthwhile is going to involve hardship and obstacles, but for the regenerate churchman, whether it be clergy or laity, the end result is good if we persevere in our faith, our callings, and our covenant promises in the church. Ironically, the more we die in Christ, the more we live in Christ. Do not be afraid, dear saints, to give yourselves entirely to God in Jesus Christ. You will not regret it. You will be glad you did it. You will achieve the highest level of capacity and capability as a human being and recreate it in Christ Jesus that you could ever attain to. You will know the glory of what it means to be created by God in the image of Christ and recreated in the image of Jesus. He unites you to himself by faith. And that's why you're here today. Let's do the exegesis of these amazing verses 8 through 12, 2 Corinthians 4, and understand how dead and alive preachers serve everyone. Now, this is an interesting doctrine that elect and redeemed Christian churchmen, laity or clergy, minister to every terrestrial creature that God made. That includes animals, plants, inanimate things, but especially other human beings. Now, the exception to this would be celestial beings like angels, who we are told in Hebrews 1.14 minister to us, the church. But Adam in the garden, as we are now in the new garden of the new heaven and new earth in Christ, are here to serve all the creation, all the world. And this truth is especially seen in gospel proclamation. And therefore, let us seek to comprehend how dead and alive preachers serve everyone. First, the world is blessed through God-given perseverance, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, 
struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So as I intimated earlier, I do venture to think that these verses 8 to 10 are primarily in reference to our ministry in and to the dead, lost world all around us that we sought to reach last week and continue to in our ministry as a church and individuals therein. And even though we read words like afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, all of them are answered in the negative with regard to our not being crushed, despairing, forsaken, or destroyed. In other words, no matter how difficult life is in this fallen world, and it is hard for every single one of you and for me, those hard times are never able to bring us down. They're not strong enough to destroy the faith-filled and faithful Christian churchmen, be he or she an ordained minister or a lay minister. So there is no way, and all of you are ministers, so there's no way we can be defeated here, despite the fact that all these things do come upon us. Affliction, perplexion, persecution, being struck down. So what does Paul mean by this interesting verse 10? Quote, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Granted that even as Paul says, or Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some places in Paul that are a little hard to understand. This might be one of them. Well, in context, I think that the earlier verse 7's jars of clay text, which Elder Craig referenced and we, we studied four Sundays ago, that terminology, jars of clay, refers to our fallen bodies in which death inherently dwells because of original sin in which we are conceived. And yet, despite this death vessel that we have, that even Jesus our Lord had to take on himself before his resurrection, In them, i.e. in these fallen bodies of ours, even now we bear about the great treasure of the life of the person and gospel of Christ himself. Well, that brings a lot of angst, doesn't it? The greatest extremes possible. So we have within ourselves, even our bodies, both Christ's death and his life. Now, it's intriguing that we bear, according to Paul here, the life of Christ in our bodies, our resurrected bodies. And that's hard to understand, except by faith. We could accept that we bear his, the death because we're lost, you know, condemned in ourselves sinners, right? We're conceived that way. We're rebels against God. But this idea of bearing his life is a remarkable one. Even now, the resurrection life of Jesus And the reason we can say this with authority is because, by God's grace, those of us who are in Christ Jesus have already experienced the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the soul, which is regeneration, new birth, new life in Christ. And that gives credibility to the fact that we will also experience the resurrection of the body as well. How dead and alive preachers serve everyone? Well, the world is blessed through God-given perseverance. In other words, Paul and his friends didn't just give up despite all these uh, hardships they were going through. And neither do we. And God is glorified through Christ-exalting discipleship, verse 11. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, I'm assuming that this verse 11 is referring to the fruit or the result of the faithful minister's perseverance in and through a committed preaching and teaching ministry, and that the fruit of discipleship, or the being formed more perfectly in the lives of the hearers in the church of Jesus Christ himself, becoming more visible to them, more apparent to them as they behold him, his glory in his face by faith, and are transformed from one glory to another in the beholding of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's what I think we're talking about here. People who are in the form of discipleship, being made more like Christ, and who are then joined to his church. Now, I don't believe that verse 11's dying and living is futile, wasted, or for no good purpose. I also think that verse 12 helps secure this interpretation of this applying to the living church because there in verse 12, Paul explicitly cites the Corinthian congregation itself. So the main thing, though, that I want you to see here, dears, is this. Gospel ministry, when done rightly or according to Christ's appointment, is wrought out of internal hardship and sometimes a lot of agony, but it always results in life in God's chosen people. And even more importantly, it brings glory to the triune God through the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. True believers in Christ are always connected to the Messiah through their faith, which then unites them to the church, which then makes them subordinately dependent upon God's own ordained means of feeding them, and that is the church's ministry to them, particularly through preaching and the sacrament and prayer, so that they receive on a weekly basis on the Lord's days the bread of life, the manna of life, and enough and plenty of energy for the week before them in Christ. Now, truly called ministers and sovereignly called parishioners should never despair because of all this language about spiritual sufferings and death, because Jesus' life and grace always predominates over it. Now, Paul's saying it's really tough, look at all these things, and yet none of those things have destroyed us or conquered us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For this glorious truth, let us perpetually bless our wonderful and triune God. So how dead and alive preachers serve everyone? The world is blessed through God-given perseverance. God is glorified through Christ-exalting discipleship. And finally, the church is secured through God's miraculous faithfulness, verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, if you know Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you might notice a common refrain here in these words. He seems to talk that way a lot about the Corinthians, how they have things he doesn't, etc. But here, I think Paul is using this phrase in a more universal sense that would apply to all the churches, including ours, even today. To explain, as the life of Christ is squeezed out of Christ's church ministers, especially on Sundays during their sermons, it may seem like death to the minister, but it is life to every regenerated elect soul sitting in the pews of the faithful church. But what could explain this other than God's miraculous faithfulness, as per the way we're, we're uh, titling this subpoint? 
And just what is this life about that the apostle writes in verse 12? Well, actually, it's not a what, but a who. And that who is the person of Christ who himself is communicated to us through the gospel ministrations, particularly preaching. Now, there's, if you call a new pastor here who is faithful to Jesus and to his calling and who is truly called by God and ordained to do the work, you will be asking that man to die for you every Sunday as he preaches his sermons that he had been preparing every week so that you will continually live in the glory and person of that same Redeemer, Christ the Lord. So keep that in mind and in your prayers. Now let's do, as always, a little more application this morning and consider how Christ's death and life operates in all the church's saints. Now, let's bring this doctrine back down home to our own hearts so that we recognize that we're not just talking about ordained teaching elders in the church, but all of us. After all, did not Jesus himself give all of the church this command in Luke 9.23 to take up your cross daily and to follow him? to die and live in Christ. Therefore, in gospel grace, let us now clearly comprehend how Christ's death and life operates in all the church's saints. First, in justification, we absolutely die to sin and live in Christ. And this is beautiful. This is really gold reform biblical teaching. By this we mean that upon the very moment of our regenerations, our being made new creatures in Jesus, our being born again, we are immediately fully justified, declared righteous before God. In fact, in relation to our Father, we are now fully dead to sin and fully alive in Christ. Now, obviously, the experience of that glorious truth gets fleshed out in the sometimes grueling travails of sanctification, and we all grant that. But the objective, concrete reality of it never changes or goes away. That's what I'm calling on you to believe here, that at the cross all your sins were remitted. You were freed there. You are liberated. You have a glorious state with God. You may fear and love him with all your heart. Covenant faithfulness or lack thereof in the context of the church is the one visible gauge of our truthfulness or falseness with regard to these professions of faith that we make. But in the truly elect people, they will always by grace alone persevere in the covenant of Christ, his gospel, and his church. So take comfort in that. You may say, boy, I struggle a lot. I sin a lot. I really have a hard time every week. Yeah, that's true. But if you're here and you're willing once again to submit yourself to this glorious Christ of the gospel and receive the benefits of atonement and forgiveness then you are the saints of God. You're the ones that God called. Because Jesus didn't come here to call good people, but sinners to repentance, not people that don't need him. You true saints really are, whether you realize it or not, dead to sin and alive in Christ alone. And the goal of your Christian church life is to become more like Christ. Lord's Day to Lord's Day, to be more conformed into his image as you behold the glory of Jesus, his face by faith, and are transformed from one degree of glory into another. Even again, as we saw from 2 Corinthians 3.18. In justification, we absolutely die to sin and live in Christ. 
And in sanctification, we continually die to sin and live in Christ. Now, someone might think that this doctrinal statement is at odds with what just preceded in our earlier point, but that's not the situation at all. The problem all of us have, even regenerate Christians, and we're seeing this uh, tonight in the stimulus class with R.C.'s teaching on growing as a, in the Christian life, is really the problem is our old nature, the remnants of it that remain, which the Bible calls the flesh or sarks. It's this, this corrupted shell, this memory of being righteous in the garden before our fall and our thinking that we can still hold on to that without Jesus, the flesh. The flesh is full of religion and passion and self-righteousness. That's our problem. The world's the problem. Yes, it is. And the devil piles on. But it's really the flesh that's the real issue. And so every day we daily put to death the flesh by faith. But how do you do that? You ever thought about that? I'll tell you how you do it. You put the flesh to death every day through your love for God in and through Jesus Christ, which love is the result of saving faith, which faith is the result of a sovereign God giving you saving faith, which sovereign God had decreed your election and predestination before the foundation of the world. You put to death the sin in you and the flesh because you love God. Nothing else works. You've tried everything else, you know it doesn't work. Trying real hard, the law, religion, the world, self-help, false religion, easy religion, nothing works. Love for God alone takes the knife of sanctification and drives it into the lust idols of the flesh. Nothing else works. And someone might ask, why would we do that? Why would we put our flesh to death, our beloved idols? Because we love God in Christ above those things and above everything else. And how may we know and love this great and holy and beautiful and compassionate, tender and loving God? who has provided us the best of all things and glorious forgiveness and freedom in Christ through faith in the Christ and the gospel of God, which is being presented to us even now. Let us believe that Jesus' blood cleanses away all our sins, not some of them, all of them in justification. And let us relish the fact that his resurrection has procured for us even now a perfect justification, a right standing before the Holy Father. Beloved, gospel preachers dead and alive are used by God to form gospel churchmen who live for Christ. Let's be thankful for gospel preachers dead and alive. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for that. We thank you that Paul underwent this angst and agony and you still do that today, but it's all good because it brings about life in Christ. We thank you that the ministry and the life of the church is impossible and supernatural, and yet it really happens. We thank you that we can live way above the ordinary world and in a supernatural state in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace and love you in him. We thank and praise you for Christ our Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen.